You already heard the text this morning, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. The title, Who Cares About the Church? There is a book written back in 2007 entitled, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, by a man named Dan Kimball. Now, the premise or the thesis or the main idea, if you will, of the book is this. People do not have a problem coming to faith in Christ. They have a problem with what they call, quote, organized religion, end of quote. In other words, they have a problem with the church. Now, I ask you, in light of that, is that perspective, understanding, perception, or viewpoint okay? Is it okay to accept Christ while at the same time rejecting the church? Regardless of what I think or what you think, that is not acceptable to Christ. In our passage this morning, we see Jesus walking around in the midst or among his church. Now, we know this because he tells us down in verse 20, the lampstand represents the church. Notice what he does not say in that verse 20. He didn't say, I'm walking in the midst of all these people who call themselves or refer to themselves as Christians who will not have anything to do with my church. Though he's there, he's walking among them, he's amidst them, he cares about his church. Do you desire to have a closer walk with Christ? You have a hymnal in front of you, I believe it's page number 448, an old hymn, Perhaps many of you are familiar with. Just a closer walk with thee. No, I'm not going to lead you in singing. Singing is not my gift. If you've noticed, every time I start singing when I'm playing, I lose the beat. So that's not that I'm gifted with. But just listen to the lyrics of this song. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Through this world of toil and snares... If I falter, Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden shares? None but thee, dear Lord, none but thee. When my feeble life is o'er, time for me will be no more. Daily walking close to, oh, excuse me, guide me gently, safely o'er to thy kingdom shore, to thy shore. Here's the point. If you want to have that closer walk with Christ, there is no walking closer to Christ, without being in the context of the local church, his body. In order to have that closer walk, you and I must value the church just like Jesus does. Look in our text, verse 12. John says, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, or whose voice was speaking to me. Now physically, John turns around, but it's also a turning point for the church as well. The visions of God's plan to end world history has begun. And notice where it begins. It doesn't talk about Jesus coming down and judging everybody. Where does it begin? It begins with his church, not necessarily the enemies of God. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus speaking says this. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, clean your own house up first before you even think about telling someone what they must do. And by the way, that speck in the log, I'll well say a two-by-four or a telephone is sticking out of your own eye. Well, your brother only has a little speck in his own eye. It is true, though, how our vision is 20-20 when we look at each other, but it comes to ourselves. We're blind as a bat. It, let me tell you, uh, as a comment on that, I would encourage you to pray, Lord, search me. Put that mirror in front of me. But I'm going to warn you, when he does that, it's going to be painful. It will be painful. But if you walk through that, repent of it, and God, Lord, work on me, in the end, it is well worth it. Look what he says. He says in verse 12, Having turned, I saw seven gold, golden lampstands. Now the Old Testament imagery here is very diverse. It's varied. All the descriptions. Now, the primary passage in the Old Testament for a lampstand is found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. That's talking about the lampstand in the tabernacle. There is many interpretations, but it comes down to these two things. That lampstand refers to Yahweh's, or the Lord's, presence among his people, and Israel's shining upon the nations. Israel is supposed to be that nation that would bless all the nations of the world by shining the light of God upon him. Now, the context here is he's talking about the churches. As churches, they need to shine their light for God in a midst of a hostile world. And that stands for you and I today. We must continue to shine our light. Look what's going on around us. We need to shine his light into a cold, dark world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and following, Jesus speaking, You are the light of the world. How many believers do we have in the house this morning? Just say amen. amen. Now say it like you mean it. Say amen. amen. Okay, there you go. You are the light of the world. You are. Not the president, not Congress. You are. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Someone comes to you, why did you do that? How could you act that way? It's not me. Let me tell you about the one who gave me the ability to do that. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about the difference he makes in my life. That doesn't take anything out of the ordinary. Just go to Walmart. Go shopping. Watch people. When you're nice to somebody, you smile to them. They take note of that because, let's face it, our society has gotten very disrespectful. And let's face it, it's downright rude. I mean, go back to the holidays. We have this great holiday we call Thanksgiving. Oh, God, we're so thankful for all these blessings. Oh, we're so blessed, blessed. And this 24 hours later, we're standing in line pushing each other out of the way to buy stuff that we cannot afford to impress people we don't even like. Only in America. Anyway, that's another sermon for another time. Let me move on before I get sidetracked. Verse 13, as he's looking at these lampstands, he says, In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son or the son of man. Christ is not an absentee landlord. He is in the midst and among his churches. He supports them during persecutions, 
trials and tribulations, and he's involved in the lives of his people. However, this also serves as a warning. So we have that comfort that God, Christ is with us. He's helping us. He's equipping us every step of the way. But it's always, always a warning in here. Also a warning. Excuse me. Here's the warning. Christ is the Lord over his church, purchased it with his own blood. He is Lord over the church, not me as your pastor, not the deacons, not the committees. Jesus alone is Lord over his church because he purchased us with his own blood. And he can remove them if they do not repent and turn back to him. Think about that for a second. We won't be shining the light that we need to be if we're not doing what Christ has appointed us to do. Now, that son of man is a title that's drawn from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. There is an obvious connection with the Gospels and the son of man sayings that we find in the Gospels. But here it's different, different grammatically. There is an allusion to Daniel. The figure is not human, but is like a man, and he is going to reign over the people of God. Let me just ask you for a second. If we could see Jesus walking in our midst, how different would we be acting in this very moment? You think I'd be up here telling you anything? If I saw him, I'd probably run down on that floor and fall on my face and cry out, holy, holy, holy. But he is here. He's with us, his people. This is not the church. You are the church. We gather here. We call this place a sanctuary because the people of God gather here together to worship God, to encourage one another, to pray for another. That's why this place becomes holy, because the presence of God comes and dwells with his people. By the way, as a believer, even when you leave this place, you still have the Holy Spirit inside you because your body is a temple of the Lord. Look how he describes them. Verse 13, he's clothed or dressed in a robe, a long robe reaching down or reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Very interesting description here because back in the ancient days, a day laborer wore the sash around his waist. So the sash was here and he would tuck it in when he went to do work. Now, aristocrat wore it around the chest, indicating a higher rank. So it's kind of like the military, different signal, different ranks. You have a third-class petty officer with a crow and a chevron. Second class, two chevrons and a crow. First class, three chevrons and a crow. I can say it because I served the Navy. But that's indicating the rank of that person. Here, what John is telling us, he's even beyond an aristocrat. It depicts Christ as an exalted, dignified figure. Now, many believe the robe and the sash refer to that of a high priest and refers to the high priestly vestments. For example, in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, these are the garments which they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, and a robe, and a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash, and they shall make holy garment for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that they may minister me as priests to me. That's very interesting that we find this description of Christ. Because if you look in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and following, Christ is now described as our high priest. Look what it says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, 
He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Let me pause there. The high priest, back in Old Testament times where Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again, they would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to get clean. It was blood of goats and bulls that they did this with. He would enter the very presence of God, going to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the mercy seat being the top, and was sprinkled of blood for the sins of the people. What this text is telling me, Jesus went into the more perfect tabernacle, i.e. heaven itself before God the Father, through his own blood, once and for all, having attained eternal redemption. Christ went before God, offering his own blood for your forgiveness and mine. Then he makes this contrast. For of the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, if the blood of bulls and goats did all this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more power there is in the blood of Christ. He entered that place once and for all. Verse 14, he keeps on describing Christ in this way. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, that's exactly how the ancient of days is described. White hair in the ancient culture indicated dignity. It also indicated uh, wisdom that came with years of experience. Christ is being pictured here in his eternal wisdom. In fact, you read back in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is, in their, is their strength, and the honor of splendor of an old man is the gray hair. So the gray hair shows dignity and wisdom. I'll get sidetracked, I'll chase this too much, but isn't it kind of tragic in our society that we don't look at gray hair that way anymore? A sign of Years of experience and wisdom. We need to go to the older people. Been down the road a little longer we have and ask their opinions and their advice. That's even true in our spiritual walk. Ask those who've been following Christ for a long time and say, how'd you get through this? How'd you get through that? And in fact, I remember reading somewhere in the New Testament, the older mature believers are to mentor the younger ones. That's how the church is supposed to be modeled. And by the way, spiritual maturity doesn't necessarily have to do with physical age. That's where you attain wisdom. Oftentimes we look at our older, more mature Christians and just kind of toss them to the side. What do they know? They know more than you think they do. Look at verse 14 again. His eyes were like a flame of fire or a blazing fire. And that image stems once again from Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 that says his eyes were like flaming torches. I don't know about you, but this is not the description I got growing up in Sunday school of Christ. His eyes were like blazing fire. 
That's divine insight that penetrates to the core of the human situation. And it goes beyond to include the fierce judgment of God. He knows who disobeys him, and he will act against them. He is all-seeing, all-knowing. Nothing gets past his look. It can penetrate. See, the problem with us is we like to put on a good show before each other. How you doing? I'm okay. All this. But he goes right to the heart of the situation. If you go back, that's what the gospel is about. He had the law. We couldn't keep the law. We're trying to on the outside, but we need a change of heart. And that is one thing Christ gives us. We become a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We become this new person in Christ. Look in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when they are made to glow in a furnace. Once again, coming from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, where it says his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. That's emphasizing the glory and the strength of Christ. Feet in the ancient world portrayed the directions of one's life. Depicts one's strength, stability, and absolute purity. If you look in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, it talks about the same description, but in the context of judgment, where strength and purity are part of divine judgments. Can you get that picture of Christ right now? Let's go back. He's, his hair and his face were like white wool. His eyes like flaming torches. He had this robe on with this sash that indicated a, a supreme authority and position that he held. He is our high priest. And look in verse 15. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Once again, John is drawing upon Old, De Old Testament descriptions of Yahweh. And this comes particularly from Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, that says, Behold, the glory of, God, of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Have you been to the beach and heard the waves crash? Think about that amplified by like 5,000, 6,000 times how loud and almost deafening that sound would be. Picture a great waterfall. Picture John on the shore, on the Patmos Island and hearing the waves crash. This image is of one of power and strength, the awesome voice of God. We already heard that his voice was like a voice a loud voice like a trumpet. And obviously this description is building upon that. So when he speaks, no one walks away and goes, who was that? What did he say? It's obvious who he is and what he says. And we get down to verse 16. He says, in his right hand he held seven stars. This is interesting because the right hand throughout Scripture symbolizes power and authority. To hold something in one sense means to acquire or take possession in another sense, it means to keep or preserve something. Both ideas of possessing and protecting are attended here. His strength, stability, and absolute purity. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, verse 16. 
This image is drawn, of course, from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. That's what it says. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, listen, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. When he speaks, things happen. He doesn't have to use force. He just speaks it. And it happens. You go back to those stars for, for a moment. The Roman emperor's would assert their cosmic rule, and they used a symbol of planets surrounding them. And they would consider that to be God. So here stars were frequently seen as the same way. And so John is saying, all those stars that they say are gods, guess who's holding all that in his right hand? Christ. In other words, depicting him as Lord over all. The mouth with which the sword portrays proclamation of judgment. And the act of judgment immediately follows the sword. If you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, you will see a man of lawlessness. Who will be destroyed by Christ with the breath of his mouth. And we see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. He speaks. Can you see this figure in your mind? Long robe, golden sash, flames like fire. And when he speaks, it's loud. It's almost deafening. And everything he speaks happens in an instant. And he describes his face last, last of all. His face was like the sun shining in its strength or brilliance. It's recalling when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. His face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahweh. Now, John had been at the transfiguration of Jesus. In Matthew uh, chapter 17, verse 2, he says, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. God is called a sun and a shield, and he will be your everlasting light. Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does. Does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for the brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting life and God for your glory. Speaking of heaven, we're getting a glimpse of Christ as he truly is. Not this baby that was born in the manger, but the exalted one over all. It's almost, dare I say, it was almost a scary description, what we're given here. And we're only in chapter 1 of verse Revelation. And remember, God is unfolding before John how he's going to bring all this to an end. And where does he begin? Where do those seven letters go to? To the government? goes to the churches. It seems to me in these next few weeks, we need to pay close attention to what he tells those seven churches. But before we go there, who cares about the church? Obviously, Christ does. It's his bride. He purchased it. It was his idea. No church is perfect. Why? 
because none of us in this room is perfect. We all make mistakes. We say things that rub people the wrong way. The list goes on and on. But what makes us different, set apart, holy is how we handle those situations. How we love each other. How we forgive each other and we move on. See, the one thing that's a stumbling block to the world is how can people come together and call themselves Christians, call themselves a church, and yet they treat each other worse than with some people out in the world. Where are you and I as a church, the local body of believers? Jesus is walking in our midst, our mediator and our judge. And he has placed tremendous value. Let's just bring it right here where we're at. He, brings, he has tremendous value and has placed tremendous value on his church, Forestburg Baptist Church. He died for you and for me. He purchased you and me with his blood. And his desire is to walk amongst us in our midst every day and every hour. How much value do you place at Forsberg Baptist Church? Let me repeat this again. I am not in charge here. I am not Lord over the church. I am simply an under-shepherd. If anything, I have more responsibility than you are because of the position that God has allowed me to take. I'll be held accountable for everything I say from this pulpit and how I handle his word. With that said, how much value do you place on the local body here? How much value and worth? And does your actions bear fruit or give evidence of your profession. Do you place enough value and worth and importance on his church that if needed be that you would today rededicate your life to serving him through this body? Does this church mean that much to you? It sure means a lot to him. And before we even get there, perhaps the most basic question that I ask this all the time, but it must be asked again and again and again because it's so important. Have you ever given your life to Christ? Have you reached a point in your life when you realize that you broke every commandment of God and no matter how hard you try, you cannot keep it? See, salvation is not a salvation based on works. It's a free gift. And when you come to faith in Christ, you say, Lord, it's no longer my life, it's your life. I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. In that moment, you are justified through his blood. You're in a right relation with God. And as we were about in Sunday school this morning, here it comes, ready? You are a saint, a holy one, not based on anything that you did. That's your standing before God. Imagine that, if you will. If you so desire... You can come and give your life to Christ. And on that day when he comes again, you can stand before him holy without blemish because his blood covers your sins. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. Perhaps you haven't put his church in a place of importance and priorities. 
This is his institution. This is what he set up. I'm going to wrap this up right now. The reason, this is just my speculation. I think the reason why he set it up that way is I can't take credit for nothing. I'm constantly, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's not me. That was a good message today, Pastor. I appreciate that. But, hey, I didn't write the thing. I'm just telling you what's already in the Bible. Pick it up and read it. He'll tell you the same thing. It's amazing. It works like that. The best thing you have as a believer to help you understand Scripture is the Holy Spirit. He'll illuminate it. And no matter how many times I read it, there's always something more to gain. This is the invitation. This is, you're invited to do whatever you need to do to get right with God, be it for salvation, be it to educate your life to him, perhaps join this local body. If this was a perfect church, it stopped the moment they called me as pastor. Follow me around for the week. <laughs> Man, that's probably a bad idea. But here's the thing. We mess up and we trip and we fall. But we repent and experience forgiveness of God and brush ourselves off and we keep going towards him. It's called sanctification. And we have all these wonderful brothers and sisters around me who are faithful to pray for me and encourage me. Come on, Tim. You can do it. Don't give up now. Let's go. You got this. There's Christ. Come on. Let's go. That's what church is all about, isn't it? Brothers and sisters who have our back through the good and through the bad, who love us, not as the world loves us, but as Christ loves us. Very simply, when the sports team is doing good, everybody gets on board, woo, they're the best team ever. When they lose, they turn their back. Here, they love me no matter what. Or they may get on to me and say, why would you do that? But their love never stops. That's the same way with Christ. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that information? It makes all the difference in the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and this wonderful opportunity to come together as the church, as saints. We know we can do this not based on anything that we could ever do or have done. It's because of your Son. And his sacrifice he made on our behalf. And Lord, we do look to that day when you come home. You take, come here and take us home. But as we wait for that day, we know we always must be ready. And we know that you want more to come to saving knowledge of Christ. And you've given us that mission to be that light be the light of the world. So, Father, I pray that you continue to move among us, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds, that we will not only hear it, but we will listen and obey. Father, grant us the wisdom, discernment, the courage that we need to follow you. We give you all praise and all glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you.